and with him an hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as a voice of many waters and as a voice of great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made (coughs) heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. Who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having his head, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle saying thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe and the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. 
Make sense to everybody? I don't know as it did for me. I don't have many comments. I just want to go down through the verses and just try to bring forth Scripture as it basically is written, um, maybe with a few things here and there that I learned I'd like to share this morning. But in verse 1 of 14, if we go back, it says, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. Now, the um, contrast, just note here, that when the beast and the, I don't know if it's a false prophet, the, the, any, any of the part of the kingdom of Satan, when it was uh, described here in Revelation, it was uh, given as it came up out of the sea. A lot of times that's the reference that it came up out. And this contrast here is, is that the lamb was standing. He stood on Mount Zion. And the word stood has a, a being established and, and just holding firm. You're not pushed around. And as you also think of a rising and a falling of other people's ideas or agendas or their kingdom or whatever the leaders, the um, kings of the earth might be, you, you know, it just, it's just like the, it talks about, you know, rises up out and then after way it might, it might fade away. We have truth this morning that we can stand on, and it just has the lamb pictured as unmoving. But it says, and with him, an hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. You can go lots of different ways on one hundred forty-four thousand. Uh, Jason in Sunday school said something about how do you know like which truth is right? There's so many flavors and varieties of churches and Christianity. It's like, how can we be so, we're the same, but yet we're so different? And I was tempted to say, well, it depends if you're part of the 144,000 or not. Now, in studying this, I, I want to agree with the one book that I was given, that if you really study the word, there's room that it's not specifically exactly 144,000 right there. The, the word thousand has room for lots of different things. And so the way you could read this is, is 144 thousands, plural. It, it, you know, a number that necessarily isn't held. And I, I think that way because Jesus likes to, Christ likes to give numbers that mean something instead of just saying, just however many, we know that 144 kind of divides by 12, and it, and it gets back to like God's chosen people. You had 12 tribes of Israel, and it's just multiplied from there. And I kind of take a little bit of uh, side with that, that it's not held to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 139,999, and 144,000. I, I, I don't quite go along with that, but you may as well. I don't know if it's quite the point. The, the, the main emphasis is that these people having their father's name written on their foreheads. And it's another contrast. It's not the mark of the beast. It's the fact that they have their father's name written in the foreheads. And we, and we know of other uh, chapters that talks about they're sealed. Just a little side note. Salvation is not complete until we are in heaven. And then the sealing is final and it's permanent 
Verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, voice of great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. It, I don't know what John was, he was just trying to explain these noise, these sounds, and that's what he wrote. And I just reflect on the power of God when you think of the voice of many waters. If you were ever at Niagara Falls or any, any place where it, it's, I mean, I stood there and it's, it's three feet of water, three or four feet, just rushing at pretty good speed, and it's over the falls they go. And there's noise, there's a sound with that, and it's great. It's, it has might, there's strength to it. And then also the voice of harpers harping on their harps. Um, that's pretty much the way it is when a person plays on, a, on an instrument. Sounds of, of inspiration and of uh, what we tend to think of beauty and harmony in, in what we know of in heaven. And three, they sang as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and before the elders. And just reflect on that, that when you, the four beasts and the elders and the throne, that all goes back to, I think, that first chapter in four, maybe three or four, I didn't look, four probably, where you have the throne room and it describes that. And I think that throne area is just carried down through all these visions. And here again it says, and it's almost as that more ideas are added to it. And you have, now they're singing a new song before the throne. But it says only those 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth were able to sing that song. And I have a little star, a highlight beside this one, and it is, are you and I singing that song that we are redeemed? Some days we might not feel like it, but I hope that deep down inside of you, you know you are redeemed, and you are able to sing in your heart, maybe not in an audible way, but you know inside that you are able to sing that song of being redeemed. Now it talks about, in verse 4 and 5, a little bit of who these 144,000 are. I'm not going to attempt to say whether that is you and I. I don't know. But what it does say is, is that it's the, like I was in Bible school one time, and he said, it, it's the cream of the crop. It's the best of the best. Now, that doesn't quite fit as we think of Christianity in, you know, one being better than the other, but it talks about what their characteristics were and what for life they lived, and it was, one, they were not defiled with women. Now, I don't take this as a uh, literal here as much as a figurative, the, the divorcing of your faith in Jesus, and you say, I'm not going to commit to it anymore, I'm going to forsake it, I'm going to go somewhere else. You would not be, uh, you would be defiled. And it says these are not defiled. And it's uh, the next part says these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. That's a challenge if we can follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And it says these were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. There's a study you could do on first fruits of how God took. And wanted even, you know, the, the, the first part that comes of the harvest you are to give to God. And it was like God was taking these uh, unto himself. And in their mouth was found no guile. There was no deceit 
is another word for guile. And they are without fault before the throne of God. That is describing, near as I know, the, the 144, at least at this time, if you can say that, that we're around the throne room. But then in verse 6, it starts in on some angels' messages. Uh, there's three of them. So in verse 6, you have the, an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to be given to all people. And in seven is what he was saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven, earth, and everything. <clears throat> I wasn't... Uh, okay, I have this underlined in my Bible because I'm ordained as a preacher. says, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. Now, in verse 7, you have fear God, give glory to him, and worship him. What I wasn't sure about is, and I have a little star here highlighted just to, um, something that's a challenge to me is, is, and I could ask you, should I be preaching that you need to be saved? You need to have your sins forgiven? Or do I preach like it says here in 7? Fear God, give glory to God, and worship Him. I don't know if there's a whole lot of difference, but if you just stick with repent and have your sins forgiven and you're a new creation in Christ, you kind of have it uh, put together in a little smaller uh, orientation. I'm not sure what word to use. Then you do if you put all this together with it. And so for myself, I have uh, taken this at you can challenge people in do they fear God and are you giving glory to God and are you worshiping God? And if they do those three things, they cannot be living in sin. They, 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 you just naturally are going to repent from what you're, you're living in, and you're going to change your ways because that's the only way you can fear God, to do what he tells you, to give glory to God in the way we were created, and to worship God. My question was, where's the message to be saved? Where, where is it? That's some of my... Thoughts and ideas coming out of seven. That is what the angel is telling in this setting, in this picture. Let's continue going here to the next one. It says, and there followed another angel that said, Babylon is fallen. And I'm not going to talk much about Babylon because it comes up later in chapter 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there. But I encourage you to study uh, that. Um, if I know of anything in Revelation, that's one that's going to really be hard to, for us to get away from, is that we don't live, we live in the city of Babylon, if I want to give an introduction to it. But here it says, Babylon has fallen, the great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Something to do with, and 
I, I don't know as I can totally understand it, but because of the way the city was living, it, it just had people following along, and it talks about she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It's a lot of words there, but you get the idea what's going on. But I did run across something and add emphasis to Babylon, and that is in Isaiah. You have the Old Testament, chapter 21, verse 9. It reads like this, And behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken in unto the ground. That's from Isaiah. And when you hear of it in the Old Testament, you know that there's weight behind it, that it's either prophecy, it's something that's going to take place. And Revelation later on does follow through with a little bit of Babylon. And the third angel, going into verse 9, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast, etc., the image is Mark. Um, Going into verse 10, it says, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. I can't quite follow the two phrases, but if you take the phrase at the end of verse 8 and the phrase in the beginning of verse 10, you kind of get some similarities there. And it wrath is an anger or a... I don't know, I remember Louis preaching on wrath, and I, I was like, boy, I, I, I need that right now just to re-emphasize in my mind what wrath is. But um, anyway, it talks about in the cup of his indignation, um, God is just going to do, this, do the same thing as what maybe the, the um, city of Babylon was doing. But in this case, it says, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. <clears throat> this has to be, I mean, I take it as a picture of hell. And the seriousness of it. In the fact that, I'm getting ahead into some of these verses, but you will not have any rest in hell. It says about verse 11, there's smoke going up forever and ever. They have no rest day nor night. And it says those who worship the beast, the image, and receiving the mark. There is no rest. I, in some ways, you think of your eternal destination as like, ha, ah, we finally made it. Either one. Like you're, you, you, you're finished with life and you sit down in a chair and it's like you're done with life. If you end up in hell, you will not be able to rest and you will continue on in torment forever and ever. And it's hard to understand, it says, it will be in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. If I didn't check, but if you go back to 4, it talks about where the Lamb came from. And it came from the throne room, the, 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 where the beasts and the, the 24 elders, where they all are. There is for lack of better words, possibility that they will be able to see the torment and the burning of because God just says, that's what I want to do. I want to see them burn forever. That's a little bit way I take it at face value here. Their smoke goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. 
verse 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. In the midst of backing up to Babylon, just a little bit, and the mark of the beast, the Christian has two things to do, to keep the commandments of God and to keep the faith of Jesus. That's what is given there in verse 12. And then in verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Here's where you have rest, that they may rest from their labors. We enjoy a day of rest, and I can't emphasize the contrast between having no rest for eternity and having rest and relaxation and comfort in heaven for eternity. I just see the the emphasis there, and it talks about their works do follow them. Don't have anything much to add to it, but that it's not just a life of faith. We do have works as well, and we, I think, will be judged by our works and what we do here on this earth. Now, um, right blessed are the dead. I'm backing up there in 13. There is seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. This is the second one. And it says, blessed are the dead. It says, happy are the dead. How can you say that? We don't quite identify with somebody that says, happy is, happy are the dead. Now, we can say happy is Jordan Zimmerman, sure, but he's not here to hear us say it. Like, it, 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 there's, a, there's a difference there. So who is this supposed to be for? It's a little bit the way it is, but it says, which die in the Lord from henceforth. And I, not so much as like what you are when you die, but looking ahead a little bit, that if you are able to die for the cause of Christ, you might not feel uh, happiness and joy in this earth, but in the eternal realms after you die, you will be blessed. Uh, near as I can get from that, but that is the... Words that were given him said, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. So in uh, 14, we have the beginning of the harvest, the angels coming and with a sharp sickle. I'm just kind of summarizing now just as an overview, 14 to 20. And this was sort of hard for me to understand, and I don't know if... Just through reading commentaries and books, it makes a little more sense to me now. But when we have um, the Son of Man on a white cloud, um, having his head a golden crown, we know that's hard to, I mean, doesn't specifically say, but we usually take some of these angels as the same or um, equivalent, like, you know, it's Jesus, it's God, uh, the one that has the authority to do these things. He has a um, in his right in his hand a sharp sickle, and another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, "Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe." So all these puzzle pieces kind of 
fit fit and made sense to me. Now, hopefully they will to you a little bit, but no band knows when Jesus is going to come back. Not even the angels. But somewhere along the line, Gabriel's going to blow a trumpet, and that will be what we read of in the other books in the New Testament. That will be uh, Jesus Christ coming back. The end of the end of time. This, I think, agrees with that. That the reaping of the earth, the taking of what is ready, and this is the first angel with the sickle coming, and it says in sixteen, and he that sat on the cloud. That's Jesus. I take it. Thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, is that a positive thing or a negative thing? Is that an evil thing or a uh, holy thing? We don't really know, but I want to differentiate that a little between what's coming next with is that that is the collection of the ripe fruits, the Christians that are ready to be harvested and be brought to God. Because you go to 17... And it switches a little bit. It says, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. Now we know what they talk about in the, back in Egypt when the death angel came through. I don't know if this is necessarily the death angel, but this is an angel that nonetheless has a sharp sickle. But uh, uh, another angel told this second angel to... This this other angel had power over fire. Um, he cried with a loud voice and told him, told the second angel with a sharp, sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. It's a little bit of a difference between the two, and I don't quite know. People were going a little bit different ways in the commentary, but the... Um, Harvest, you know of, is when it's ready to be harvested, it's ready. If a grape is just right, it's ready. If wheat is just right, it's ready. Now, 19 says, The angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. It doesn't say that's where the first reaping went. This is the second one. It says that God is taking these that are ready. He says, enough. He says, I'm done. We're going to put them in the wine press. And I would also like to say that when it talks about the burning the chaff with fire somewhere in uh, Jesus' teaching, that when um, wheat, and I'm just jumping in with my own uh, thoughts here, but when you take a, a plant of wheat and it's green and it's grown and then it gets uh, matures and it gets ripe, and then it starts to what? It starts to die. And if it's, depending on when it harvested, it may or may not be any good. But what uh, I took was, um, even though in the seed there's still life, I know that. But when we see um, things that go dead, and the plant is dead, it's like you're, you're done with it, there's nothing. And I, I just, in my mind, it was when the, when the spiritual life of people and God looks down and says, there's just no life in these people anymore. He's just like, they're just done. 
I'm taking them all. And now I know I'm getting mixed up between wheat and grapes, but it talks here specifically of the great wine press of the wrath of God. And as disgusting as it sounds, the Old Testament ways of making wine was is to throw all the grapes into a big concrete trough and then just take your socks and your shoes off, your sandals, and put your smelly, stinky feet on them grapes and stomp them until the juice ran out. Is that right? Anybody know about that? I, I read that and I, no way. There's just no way. But that's what they did. And that is the representation of what Jesus, what God is going to do. Now, when this takes place, I don't know, but it says in 20, And the winepress was trodden without the city. It was not in the city. It was outside somewhere. And it says, And the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. And that verse is, there's lots to go with that verse in, like, in many different ways that people could take it. But and some of the historians say that actually could have happened where an army... And the battle was so bad that the blood of the people, um, you know, the horses were up to about, you know, up to their neck or whatever in, in blood that was running out uh, in, in because of the battle, the, the fighting that was going on. But uh, it may be uh, literal, but it may be figurative in here. I don't really know. But the, the figurative one is the space of 1,600 furlongs. So it gives, you know, an idea of like how, how long this was happening. Um, just it, it kind of made sense to me. Um, the one resource said about the uh, the okay. So if you take a thousand and six hundred furlongs and just convert that to miles, you get a hundred and eighty-four miles. So like that's just a fact of just what it's saying. It's saying a hundred and eighty-four miles. But the figurative part could be that that is approximately the length of the Holy Lands. And to me, I go, well, that, that would make sense if Jesus is talking about his chosen area and if this area that um, just turns their back on God and, and, and is ready for a harvest of eternal destruction, um, it's going to cover that area. Now, maybe I'm just, my mind's going a little bit the wrong way, but that is um, some things that were came, came about in the 184 miles, um, the length of Palestine or the Holy Lands. And so in conclusion to this, at least the last part of this chapter, I see the first harvest Jesus is taking his, the second harvest is the angel um, taking those that will be eternally lost forever in, um, in hell. Now let's try to do chapter 15 yet. I don't have quite as much in 15. Um, it's not as long of a chapter. And so I'd like to just... Um, Go over a few things yet in 15. Um, I am going to take time to read it. I just enjoy hearing the words again as they are given. And so Revelation chapter 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, and the, Moses the servant of God and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. 
Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, having their breasts girdled, girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So in verse 1, it does give about a great and marvelous um, a sign, another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. And that's, there's only three of them that are this great. The first one was the, um, the woman that was in travail was going to give birth. The second great sign was the dragon that was going to devour this uh, uh, child that was to be born. And this is the third one about seven angels having the seven last plagues. This is the end. This is coming down to where it says these are angels having the seven last plagues. And so you know that it's getting to the end. The angels will perform the final wrath of God on those who, don't, who refuse to repent. And those will be in the next chapter in 16. Now verse 2 describes the people that had gotten the victory over the beast his image and his name and his number. And these also stood on a sea of glass mingled with fire, having harps of God. John trying to understand and see, just describe what, what was there. Um, I don't have any comments on that, but a, a sea of glass is um, must be amazing, must be something to behold. I, I Just something come to mind that somebody tells me or thought come to mind, you can correct me, is pure gold is clear. Does anybody know about that? Or maybe I'm just taking it because the streets of gold are transparent. But anyway, we might get to that on later in the, the last two chapters. But um, a sea of glass, but it's mingled with fire. They have the harps of God. And they were singing. And the song was of Moses. And you know of when they sang that song was after the army went, Egyptian army went into the Red Sea, after the walls were, waters were apart. And the Lord destroyed them. They brought the waters together and they were, and the, People were singing and rejoicing in what God had done. And I just want to point out in verse 3, it gives kind of two things. You sort of have to look through them there. But they were praising uh, the works and the ways of God. And they're written in there if you look for them. Verse 4 is continuation of it as it says, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name about all the nations? We know that every knee one day will have to bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and judgment will take place. His judgments will be made known. In verse 5, I, we even had this before where the tabernacle and the, the parallels of the Old Testament, you know, the tabernacle, being able to see into the Holy of Holies and, and the, um, the closeness of where God even is. And I personally like the fact that this is the dwelling place of God. 
when the cherubs were seated, were looking down on top of the mercy seat, and God said, there's where my spirit's going to be. And now that is being opened up. And we can see into it as it talks about the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. There's three words there that um, have a lot of meaning to them. And just to um, give a little uh where I was saying about the, you know, the temple of God, the, um, the two Greek words for temple, one is meaning the building, like the whole thing, but every time that temple is used in the whole book of Revelation, it's not talking about the temple and the, the big building and whatnot. It's talking about the temple, which is the dwelling place of where the, um, and I don't know quite how it was said, it, uh, Anyway, where God dwells in there is where it says about the temple. Um, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony it is that inner place. And that's what it means when it talks about temple, not the whole thing. It's, the, it's that place where God dwells. Uh, and then, um, like I say, they, uh, it was opened and then out of that, out of that place where, you know, Jesus dwells, the, in verse 6, these seven angels come, and they have seven plagues. But these angels are clothed in pure white linen, and they have uh, girded with golden girdles, you know, around their breasts, and different uh, things were there. Of Like, that's a that's, um, attire of, of holy people, of priests, and it just fits of who these, who these angels are coming from. Um, out of the temple. And it just says that the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, and no man was able to enter into it until the seven plagues are finished. So I um, want to read to you, and I, I think I skipped over it, but I just I was reading it in First Kings, and you know, from one end of the Bible to the other, and I'm just going to read it for you quick. But the the intentions that God had way back here in the Old Testament and His ways that we don't always know. First Kings 11. This is talking is in the middle of Solomon, in chapter 11, verse 32, chapter 11, verse 32 and 36. It gives indication, and I'm jumping in the middle, but just listen to this. But he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. That's the city that God chose. Now, if you go down to verse 36, it repeats it a little bit. And he and unto his son will I give one tribe, that David my servant may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen to put my name there. That's in First Kings in the Old Testament. And when I read that, I'm going, yeah, where did God chose to put his name? It's in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about Jerusalem being literal or figurative, but we, we can understand it in that way. Now, <clears throat> I think I'm pretty much finished. I have one uh, piece of homework for you, and I was in First Kings there. I'm not going to turn to it. I'm going to give it to you. You may go home and read it, and you may uh, give me your comments if you want, because it has to do with um, the last time uh, 
more some in chapter 13. And it is, if you want to write it down, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. 1 Kings 10, 14. And I would uh, anticipate or I'd be eager to hear what any of you have to think about that. So um, may God bless each of you in our um, efforts. And if anything that I gained out of this again in these two chapters is our responsibility to number one, just to worship God. You may feel like you're a nobody, but if you worship God, that's all you need. You don't have to be somebody famous here on earth. You don't have to have talents and abilities and everything else. All you have to do is just worship God. That's all he wants from his people. And I think I'll just stop with that. We'll, we'll continue on later some of the chapters. I um, know we'll get into some things, but it, it's an emphasis of revelation that I keep seeing. I think I even mentioned in the beginning, but God deserves the honor and glory that we can give him. Why don't we stand for closing prayer this time?